Welcome to Dangerously Likely. I'm Caleb. I'm Terrell. And I'm Torrance. And today, it's dangerously likely to get hot in here. Let's go above the fold with this week's headlines. Over the past two weeks, social media giant Facebook, also owner of WhatsApp and Instagram, has been embroiled in a PR crisis after internal documents have been shared with the federal government and the media, the former including testimony on Capitol Hill. Former Facebook product manager and now Facebook whistleblower Francis Haugen submitted internal Facebook documents to both the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission as well as to Congress in conjunction with their testimony. Haugen alleges that Facebook has put their profits over the safety of users on their platform and has supplied the internal documents as proof of her claims. The evidence in these documents reveal everything from internal studies that show Facebook is aware of the harmful impact that Instagram has on teenage girls to their own internal studies that show that their algorithm and their core products contribute to the spread of harmful disinformation. Here are a few specific findings from the documents. So they broke these down into kind of like succinct uh, mm-hmm. findings. I'm going to go through four. Facebook executives have long known that their platform's hate speech problem was bigger and more entrenched than their company discloses, while Facebook prioritizes rooting out violence and hateful content in English-speaking Western nations, it neglects developing regions that are more vulnerable to real-world harm from negativity on social media. The second is that in 2019, Facebook set up a test account in India to determine how how its tools affect people in its most important market. Within three weeks, the fictional user's account devolved into a maelstrom of fake news and incendiary images. Thirdly, their finding was that Chief Executive Officer Mark Zuckerberg Zuckerberg personally agreed to comply with demands from Vietnam's ruling Communist Party to censor anti-government dissidents or risk getting knocked offline in one of Facebook's most lucrative Asian markets. And most importantly, I find is that Facebook's own staff, including its internal researchers, faulted the company for failing to thwart the proliferation of groups that fomented violence on January 6th. Terrell, Caleb, we have all discussed the harm that social media has had on our society, and these recent revelations put those reasons in glaring focus. Uh, what are your thoughts? Are any of these specific findings most concerning to you? Uh, Terrell, we'll start with you, as I know you've got some opinions. What's that supposed to mean? Um, I like we we've known this, right? I feel like I keep I've become a broken record at this point. I'm like we already knew this. Um, but I look no further than the Mueller report that outlined the extensive misinformation campaign related to the 2016 um, election. And then as we currently live through a pandemic, we can constantly see the misinformation as it relates to vaccinations and um, the actual virus itself and how to protect yourself, so forth and so on. Um, I do think what's interesting here is that it does a very those recommendations do a great job of highlighting what this looks like internationally. I obviously in the U S markets, we tend to be more focused on, Oh, it's not that bad. Or they have the little disclaimer at the bottom saying, do your own research, which we all know don't go far enough, but in other countries, this type of misinformation can spark a coup and can spark such um, egregious acts against not only the government, but against the people. Um, So, I'm, I'm thankful and happy that a whistleblower is finally able to come out and speak truth to this and, and looking forward to more so how the European Union handles this than our American market. Caleb? Yeah, I mean, to answer your question, Torrance, uh, looking at all of these, these are all things that I am uh, concerned about 
I think equally, which is a lot. I'm really concerned about every single one of the things that you listed here and all the other things we heard as well. I already, I feel like these were things that we already kind of knew. They may have just been officially confirmed, except um, the first uh, bullet point that you had here. Facebook executives have long known that the platform's hate speech problem was bigger and more entrenched than the company discloses. We knew that. We also knew that they prioritize Western nations um, and not countries where like grave human rights disasters are happening. And I mean, we know this because in Myanmar, like we know the government uses Facebook and in Myanmar, they only have like two people that does that do content moderation there. Like we mm-hmm. already knew that they don't have a focus on these places that probably need it the most. And I just think that like, I don't know. I've been expecting a lot of this for quite some time. I feel like there's been a buildup of how bad Facebook is and this is just getting worse. <laughs> yeah. And Facebook Facebook also has this immense market power that really no other social media market or company has. And I just, like in some places, it is the social media. It has um, almost a monopoly on the market. And I just think that we're going to start seeing uh, hopefully some 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 uh, uh, accountability with Facebook. I think it's going to be broken up. I don't know how that's going to work or and that process may, may take years, but it's coming. That's all I have to say about that. Yeah, I, I think that, and you're, and you're right, I think the international implications, I think it's hard for people in America to understand um, how this kind of influence can be so so strong right i think people forget like places like myanmar or small countries in eastern asia where even though highly populated are are only as populated as some of our singular states mm-hmm. here in, in in the u.s and how we see some of this this violence and this this misinformation and disinformation campaigns that that take hold in some of our you know for example some of our southern states to a point of being the majority of the people in those states believe these absolutely untrue things about their government but because of our federal our federal system and having 49 other states we are we, you know we are able to you know place influence in over them in the ways that other un, underdeveloped and undeveloped uh countries in the world don't have that same you know same ability to do so and, and in addition to that i think that we forget that you know the internet and largely social media is completely unregulated and to put it in terms of like how like we could see it in america it's like at any point having one tele, you know, telephone company who could see every piece of internet search, every text message, every phone call of 75% of people in the country. Like how much power and that and information that possesses and how dangerous that information can be in the wrong hands. And I think that that is the case in some of these small countries. And it's, I mean, Facebook is, I think, in my opinion, a pretty terrible company. And I've, I've had that opinion for quite some time. Um, because I think that any company who who continuously in the face of some of this criticism says, well, we, we, we'll, we'll, it's up on the government to regulate us. You do not care if that's the, the, the position you take. Mm-hmm. If you have the tools and you've revealed it as these documents, some of the information these documents show that you have the ability to better regulate your platform, but because of profits, you won't. This is not about government oversight. This is about your greed and your selfishness. And it's dangerous. Over the past weekend, Rolling, uh, Rolling Stone report came out that uh, listed names of congressional members who apparently worked with organizers to plan protests ahead of the January 6th insurrection. Some of the members are Marjorie Taylor Greene, Paul Gos- Gosar, Madison Cawthorn, and many more. 
Of course, many of these uh, members are denying the report, saying they did not participate in any criminal activity on or ahead of the January 6th insurrection. Uh, Torrance, we'll start with you. Got any thoughts with this? Okay, well, ugh. I've been trying to be con- I've been trying to be conscious about about my profanity on the pod. You know, my mother is is listening, but you know that's ever stopped you before. <laughs> these people, I mean, these people are truly reckless and terrible. And you know, Madison Cawthorn got you know thank thank God that a college student owned his dumbass. Um, and, and which was which was beautiful. If anyone has not seen it on TikTok, it is, has gone viral. Yes. Please look it up because this this college student makes him look like an absolute dumbass as he is. So it's just it's just reality and facts coming to life for you. But um, my thoughts on this are you know alluding to what we just talked about. Facebook was an, an organizing factor um, for January 6th. And, and I think that people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and like Madison Cawthorn, et cetera, use whatever forces in the world they can to, to bring their plans to fruition. And I think that hopefully the Justice Department investigates this fully. I hope the January 6th committee investigates this fully and that those that are responsible, which I'm sure they are because they're fucking horrendous human beings, are involved in this and that justice is served. I'm going to use a chess analogy here. I'm really glad that we were able to take out take out a couple of pawns as we move closer to the rooks and the king and queen. Um, wow. I don't care that they are. We we know, like, yeah, it, we know. It was known the day of the insurrection that um, Marjorie Taylor Greene was actively telling people the whereabouts of Nancy Pelosi as she was made aware putting the Speaker of the House in harm's way for nothing more than some political points. Um, And now that the insurrection failed, her and whatever the one with the B name is, which is ironic. Lauren Boebert. Yeah. From Colorado. It's ironic I can say B because that fits. Um, It's ironic That. that both of them helped start this insurrection only for it to fail. And now we see how idiotic they are in Congress because they don't know how to be a part of policy. They don't know how to show up in this space. They don't know what they're doing because their only platform was get Donald Trump elected and they failed miserably. Um, so for me, like, yeah, cool, great. We we now know a couple of the pawns that moved on the chessboard early, but what I want is for the facts to come out and the proof to be there that the former president of the United States actively tried to stage a coup against the United States government because he is so egocentric, narcissistic, and just incapable of any sense of humanity to lose. Moving on to uh, a business side of Above the Fold, which I don't think we've really touched on. This past week, Tesla announced that it had made a deal with the rental company Hertz to supply it with 100,000 Teslas, which represents about $4.2 billion of revenue. This caused Tesla to become the fifth company in the U.S. to be valued at over $1 trillion in the stock market. This is a little outside of what we usually talk about, but I really wanted to ask you two about this. Tesla is now worth more than the next nine car companies combined, including Toyota, Ford, and many others. Yet all of the other car companies are making electric vehicles and still doing quite well financially. My question really to you two is this. Um, do you have a favorable, favorable view of Tesla? 
um, more than other car companies? And if you do, why? Trail, let's start with you. Hi, how did I know you were going to start with me? No, I'm very indifferent to them. Um, I'm not, my view of them isn't negative because of Elon Musk specifically, but it is negative towards them um, because I know a few individuals who own um, Tesla's the inability to get your car repaired in a timely matter, the amount of money you have to spend to get some simple thing like a um, windshield wiper replaced is egregious to me and and unfair, while this company now is valued at $1 trillion. Um, but also their lack of attention to detail because to them, this product is not significant. Like, you can tell with how Elon Musk carries himself and how he moves around that the car is the means to get what he needs. But what his real aspirations are is making this money and being able to go to space and be the first in this and be the first in that. Meanwhile, people are getting cars that are failing to actually um, self-drive appropriately or have weird cosmetic disformities that um, those other car companies that you listed don't inherently have. That's actually kind of interesting i um i haven't besides the self-driving thing which i think we've all heard about um and i think that's and actually batteries exploding Let's quite intentional that. i haven't really heard of any bad review of a tesla based off the few people that i know have one i quite interesting. haven't either um that's I, I mean everyone i ever no, no, I mean, no, I no, I really haven't. Though. I mean, I'm sure, no, I'm sure that I'm not saying I have some like massive data pool, right? But like, <laughs> I know, I mean, right? Like, it's it's definitely only, admittedly, like a few people that I've ever met that own a Tesla themselves, and they all have very favorable opinions of of the car. But also, there's a huge cultural like hype about Teslas as well. Yeah. And I guess what I want to understand more, because I, I mean, admittedly, obviously, I'm not you know paying attention to 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 cars all that often. Sorry, Michigan, um, but. Like if I know that we have really great electric cars coming out of some of like the main car manufacturers, right? Like Ford, like Chevy, like Dodge, et cetera. Now, what is the, what is the greater value of, of a Tesla? Like what is the thing that is, is making this company be valued at such a higher level? I know obviously Teslas are more expensive, but like, is it a significantly higher value? I know obviously, I, I guess I just want to understand more how this is happening. I guess what I will say is like, I know that Teslas are pretty, pretty cool in my experience, obviously not a vast experience with them, but I think they're a pretty cool vehicle, but I think there's a ton of other really cool vehicles as well, right. That are electric. Um, but I think it's pretty awesome that Hertz is going to have a hundred thousand of them in their fleet, which is like <laughs> kind of lit yeah. for the travel, but you know, yeah, <laughs> I yeah. guess that's exciting. Yeah. I don't, I mean, I, yeah, I truly, when I heard that this week, I was like, what don't I get about this, this equation? It's just a Versace, like, it's using, yeah, using fashion right. here. It's a Versace right. bag compared to Ford being a coach and right. GM being a Michael Kors. Like everyone can own a coach and a Michael Kors, but only some can own the Versace. Which was my inkling, which makes me even more upset, actually, then. Well, I mean, I I genuinely like, while I'm sure the deal is great for Tesla, and I'm glad that there's more electric vehicles going into a rental car company. Mm -hmm. Um but $4.2 billion of revenue doesn't equal a trillion dollar valuation to me. The trillion yes. dollar valuation comes from kind of exactly what you two are talking about. It's brand. Um, people think of Tesla as this like bringer of the new kind of world of energy. And it's a safe investment. Uh, I wouldn't actually say it's safe. It goes up and down quite a lot. But yes. like, like my, my impression is that people think that like, oh, Elon Musk came in with Tesla and Tesla's in a 
market where there's already dominant players in and he broke through and now Tesla's turning a profit and they're making these deals and they're an electric car company that makes cool cars. Of course, of course they're going to be hyped up. Um, right. I, you know, I think that there's other car, other car companies are making electric vehicles that aren't as great. I think Ford's making electric vehicles that are as great, if not better than Tesla, but like, it's all about expectation setting and brands. That's all the stock market is, is expectations of how you think Tesla's going to do. And right now there's no reason to say that it won't do, it won't be bad in the future. So there you go. But I think that that's the thing that, and I'll be honest, like this is the thing that in capitalism bothers me the most, right? It's like we, as we'll be talking about in climate change, I guess, you know, right segue, like later on in the episode, like we are living in a world with such finite resources at this point that, like the fact that we still live in an economy that 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 evaluates something based on such arbitrary things when like people can't afford cars, people can't afford homes. Like I'm just I think that that really like grinds my gears. You know, like because you're just telling me that like yeah, you put the two cars next to each other and the cost to make them is 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 not even close to comparable to the, the valuation of the two. Wall Street hasn't been in touch with mainstream America in. 16 plus years like no offense to apple but apple should not be valued at over a trillion dollars right now if we're being completely honest i actually disagree the technology i disagree with that too actually the technology that they're bringing (laughs) the technology that they're bringing out is fine but it's very much in line with what they already have they haven't really made exactly the same groundbreaking things that they did that started the first um huge shift in their market so if if i'm an investor yes i'm gonna invest in apple because it's safe but am i going to overvalue it as a trillion dollars knowing good and well that it is not the size of multiple countries in our country no like it that is one sometimes, great example but, that is out of touch. But that's one that, like, when you think about, like, market economies, like, makes sense. Because you're like, every, like, I don't see that many Teslas. When I look around, I'm like, there's a, there's an, there's an iPhone, there's AirPods, there's a Mac, there's, like, I mean, like, it's, like, it's like, well, they've sold a lot of fucking shit. Like, that's, like, that's why, like, you know, like it makes total sense to me. And I also think they are, and I think it's an incredible product. I really do believe that, as Tesla, yes. I'm sure, you know, obviously is too. But it, I can calculates for me and it makes sense even though i think that you know a little, little bit uh worrisome of a monopoly itself but i think it makes more sense to me than than tesla in a way that i can't wrap my head around apple as a company i i agree with everything you said except the part where it shouldn't be valued at a trillion dollars apple as a company first of all they've consistently made a good product at least to like the hundreds of millions of people who buy their product products every year, mm-hmm. every year, even though there is a new version that's like maybe a little faster. I don't know. A little bit faster and maybe some camera cousin, improvements. Yeah, some camera improvements. Yeah. Oh, this iPhone has a square edge kind of I deal. I do prefer the square edge. There you go. <laughs> well, but that's the thing though, is like Apple came in the market first with these kind of products, smartphones, and they've consistently made it good and they don't need to put out the best technology in a smartphone to still win the game. That's how strong their brand is. And also other things we probably don't see, like their buying power or even supplying power. They do have a very large buying power. I yeah. That. Like they're a massive company that has a lot of like, I'd argue competitive advantage in a lot of these places and areas where like maybe Samsung is good in other places in the world. In the US, Apple completely dominates. But like Tesla also, I think... I think Tesla is a little inflated. Um, 
But I will to give Tesla some credit. They they aren't actually a car company. They're an energy company. Yep. They're trying. That's all, what. I, that okay. All of their designs are are free for people to use. They post them. Mm-hmm. It's open source, so you can basically build a Tesla car and sell it, and you wouldn't be um, be liable for that. It wouldn't be legally bad for you to do that. You like Tesla is trying to create a new energy standard with how we operate in the world. And it's not just cars. They make batteries that you can put in your garage that store energy. They make roof um, panel, solar panels, roof. I don't remember. Panel. Is that what is solar panels? (laughs) Yeah. No, but it's like the, it's like the, so it's solar panels, but it's the roof shingles that are solar panels. Um, oh, like, oh. The, the, what are they? The yeah. Like, like plates. I think so like they're called Something solar like panel roofs or whatever, where you don't just put like a solar panel on top of your roof. It's like the roof is the solar panel, yeah. but like yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. They make all these products. They're trying to become like the next Exxon mobile of its time. That's what they are really doing. And they're doing it through selling cars. Yes. I, and that's what I mentioned. Like from the, uh, qualitative feedback I have received, it is noticeable that the cars are a means to an end, not like, or a means, not a means to an end. Like his mm-hmm. end all to be all is not the car. And everyone knows that mm-hmm. <clears throat> he does want to explore space. He does want to become a, a bigger contributor to space exploration for countries. He wants, he's involved in um, military grade um, weaponry. Like there are a lot of other things that come out of Elon Musk and the car is the most relevant or understandable way to just see some of those um, neglectful parts, I guess. You yeah. know, this this is both me feeling stupid and obviously smart as well because I know who this person is. But like, I guess that knowing that it's an overall energy company, I'm like, okay, so that's why it's called Tesla because of Nikola Tesla. Mm-hmm. And I was like, so it's not about the car at all. I don't think a lot of people actually get that, but yes. investors do. Investors do yeah. get that. Yeah. And well, as soon as you said it, I was like, well, oh, well, Tesla makes more sense now because obviously the he was an energy baron. Mm-hmm. Let's go around the world in under a minute. You guys know it's kind of funny. I complained when I started making the segment that our media markets don't allow for us to know global news, but I'm low-key a gatekeeper here. So anyway, um, Japan's Princess Mako um, chose love on Tuesday. Following a year-long engagement, years-long engagement, actually, in media scrutiny, um, Princess Maku, now Kumaro, and commoner Ki Kumaru, um, two college sweethearts, have wed, and that's resulting in Maku losing her title, and she actively turned down $1.3 million um, that's usually given to women who leave the royal family. The two will move to the U.S., specifically New York, um, where Key is practicing law. Senators in Brazil met today, Tuesday, to formally vote on recommendations to criminally charge President Zad Bolsonaro um, for his role in the second highest COVID death toll globally. Brazil has seen more than 600,000 deaths from the pandemic. Um if only the U.S. could take some responsibility in that case um, as we face similar things. And then taking us to Sudan, um, Sudan is under intense scrutiny as Sudan's armed forces detained Prime Minister Hamdok late on Monday. Armed, force, armed Forces Chief General Abaldi 
Fatah al-Buhan um, claims this ousting was necessary to avoid a civil war in the region. The prime minister and members of his cabinet have not been harmed, according to the armed forces, and the general has actually moved the prime minister to his personal residence for his security. Protests have begun um, in the streets to detest this takeover. As we monitor these stories, we will continue to keep y'all up to date, but for now, we'll be right back. And we're back. So this week, guys, we're going to talk about climate change ahead of President Biden's trip to Glasgow, Scotland later this week for the COP26, which is the United Nations Climate Conference. It is called COP26 because this is the 26th year the UN has met on climate. Um, Biden will be accompanied by 13 cabinet members and administrative officials, uh, including uh, former Secretary of State John Kerry, who is the Special Presidential Envoy for Climate, who has been doing um, climate diplomacy throughout the year ahead of the um, conference that starts later this week. It will go from the 31st uh, to November 12th. Um, as I think a lot of people know, as we've discussed on this, um, the infrastructure bill also includes climate provisions that President Biden was hoping to have that, yeah, that for now, that President Biden was hoping to have passed and actually called to be to be had have passed with the climate, um, the climate uh provisions within the bill, excuse me, um, before he heads to this conference so that he does, he has some foot to stand on that uh, the U.S. is doing something about climate. Um, and after four years of really no action and rolling back of some of the, um, some of the regulations that we had imposed during the uh, Obama presidency, including leaving the, the Paris Climate Agreement, which President Biden rejoined um, after becoming president. Um, the COP26 is kind of focused on four uh, different things. One, securing global net zero by mid-century and keeping 1.5 degrees within reach. Um, it's also to mobilize financing. So developed nations, uh, according to the Paris Climate Agreement, were supposed to have at least $100 billion a year in climate investment by 2020. Um, and then thirdly, uh, to adapt to protect communities and natural habitats. And fourthly, work together to deliver. Um, one of the key components of that is creating the Paris rulebook, which is outlined in the Paris Climate Agreement, but this Paris rulebook that they have to write details the rules that make the Paris Agreement operational. So they plan on bring, bringing governments, businesses, and civil society together to achieve these goals. One of the main um, goals of the Paris Climate Agreement was for all developed nations uh, to decrease by 50 to 52% uh, greenhouse gas emissions from their 2005 levels um, by the year 2030. So I think that we talk about a lot of uh, political things on this podcast, and no, no doubt climate change is one of those things. However, I think this is one of those topics that's hard to sh uh, doesn't always show up in people's lives on a day to day basis, despite it actually being something that is impacting people daily. Including, I mean, when I think about climate change, I also think about racial justice because in America, um, there's been you know an intentional uh, placing of minority communities, especially black communities in areas that are most affected by climate change. And, and, and we're going to continue to see that um, as we move forward without with the inaction, quite frankly, that we have had as a country. Uh, gentlemen, do you have any thoughts ahead of this climate conference? Anything that you guys um, want to offer? I think this climate conference is kind of interesting, especially when like we've been immersed in kind of the politics here in the U.S., um, like there's been a lot of narrative around like, oh, if Biden doesn't have an agreement on climate provisions, like it's going to be bad for him in Glasgow. And then there was like reports that Biden was like one of his ways of persuading like Manchin and Cinema to like 
mostly mansion to agree to some of these climate provisions was like, I need to take something to Glasgow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like, I don't, obviously we don't know like um, all the details of that bill or whatnot. And I don't really know all the climate um, provisions of it, but I think that like it does hurt our chances when we, when all we all I feel like we hear in the news is like, oh, Manchin says no to this one, one Democrat out of our majority says no to like the biggest um, impact climate provision that we have. Uh, and that's kind of all we know. And I'm not really a hundred percent sure how Democrats are planning to make what the impact that would have had. I don't know what they're planning to replace that with, mm-hmm. but I think that like, I don't know, it'll be really interesting to see what happens in Glasgow because I mean, I don't know. There was a report in the UN, like I, you might've already mentioned it, but we are, we've already done stuff with climate. We've already actually done decently with climate, but like, it's only like one seventh of what we need to do to like not die in 50 to a hundred years. And, um, I don't know, like, I know it, it, everything that has to do with climate change, like 50 to a hundred years seems like a lot, but we got to do that stuff now to change that trajectory. And it just doesn't feel like it's always, it doesn't feel like it's always like an emergency with it, but it is. And I don't know, I just get frustrated with the politics at home when it comes to climate change. But yeah, that's kind of what I've been thinking about in terms of this uh, uh, summit, climate summit that's happening shortly. I I mean, even to jump on that, I think from a, political space, it's frustrating that we're still having arguments of days past, right? Of this doesn't impact everyone. This there, we don't need to make drastic changes when Caleb and I right now are sitting through probably one of the rainiest months in Boise history, I would argue, because there is a bomb cyclone off of the coast of the West coast um, that is legitimately shooting water into California, Washington, Oregon, and Idaho. Um, a state that just had one of the worst droughts on record is now actively flooding and people are being asked to uh, abandon their homes and leave because of mudslides due to the scorched earth um, in California. So we're, we're still in the space of, well, climate change isn't that bad, but we can't ignore, especially our generation, we can't ignore the fact that we lived 10 years ago where these types of storms were supposed to be once in a lifetime storms. These type of phenomenons were supposed to be once in a lifetime phenomenons. And now they're becoming normal. We we're going to experience one of the warmest winters across this um, country. And we can't keep allowing this argument to be, Oh, it doesn't have that much impact or West Virginia needs to be able to produce coal Coal-fired plants have been on a sharp decline for multiple years, and it's okay for us to move past that and then educate that state on how it can be a part of the new energy future. Um, And whether you care about this from a national stage or not, when you look at the conditions at home and you see that your um, southern region is being battered with the worst storms every year, hurricane seasons going longer, when you see your western states are being set on fire, actively every year um and each year has the biggest wildfire we all need to understand that this is directly impacting us this is contributing to the supply chain shortage this is contributing to um, the reasons this pandemic 
has lasted for a decent majority as it has forced a lot of people to again relocate. We need to understand that, yes, while you might not care about a lot of rain, the ripple effects um, just have a vast impact on how we function in this country and can result in a lot of damage moving forward. Yeah, I think I am on the same page kind of as both of you, but specifically it's the politics at home that can that is really frustrating, right? You you allude to these politics of yesteryear, basically like why are we still having this debate for what some people even does climate change exist, mm-hmm. right? Um, which I used to I, I would want to, you know, cite obviously that the overwhelming by overwhelming like ninety-nine percent of all, you know, the world scientists agree with climate change um and global warming. And but now with the pandemic and obviously anti the entire anti-science movement of the conservative wing of our of our country, uh, what is citing you know scientific facts anymore? Basically, um, I think that I think what I think just if I let myself get hopeless in moments, what infuriates me is that this is not a pro- a problem like racism or like. Um, any other, you know, other policy issue that we might face in our country where we can like learn and educate and be like later on in life, you can, you can, you can go 20 years being racist and then come learn something about it. And and you, you try to unlearn all of these things that you've learned. Hmm. We don't have many shots at this, whether they come around to it, whether they want to do anything about it now in 20 years, that won't matter in 20 years. We won't be able to turn back the clock. We have to take action now. And so sometimes I get so infuriated because it's like those of us sitting here believing the science, knowing we have to do something, ready to make the the sacrifice about that. Well, people just push back at us and like, well, you're crazy and you're just trying to be, you know, put people into a panic about the state of our climate and how it's going to change the world and and the mass migrations that are going to have to occur because of the effects of climate. It's like, well, that's reality. And we have to prepare each other for reality. We have to do something to try to slow that as best as possible. But them pushing back on it now because of pure politics and wanting to do not, I mean, like two members of our own party right now, right? Like, or at least one specifically pushing back hard on climate provisions mm-hmm. when those climate provisions don't go nearly far enough to actually save us from the hell that we're going to, that we have created for ourselves is, and it's like, well, will you not have to answer to your grandchild? Like, will you like, do you not, I mean, do you have no like forethought about like how this is going to affect future people that you say you care about and love? And that infuriates me to no end because we can't go backwards. I mean, there's, I mean, every year we are losing an opportunity to save some of the semblance of normalcy that we are used to in our society. I mean, for politicians like Mitch McConnell, no, he doesn't have an answer to his grandchildren because he eats them to stay alive this long. So, (laughs) Jesus Christ. (laughs) Sounded like some SNL weekend update shit right now. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Michael Che. I'm Colin Jones. (laughs) I um, look, I I, I do want to like a couple points here. Like, we have made a little bit of progress in like the last decade. Like, like the projections for climate used to be like worst case scenario at the end of the century. And now it's like a little better than that. It's not enough. Obviously we shouldn't even get to the point now, but we have made some progress and I don't want to like push that under, um, even though like we still need to do a lot of stuff. Like mm-hmm. it's good that we have made some progress in, in companies and countries are starting to orient themselves more into like stopping emissions and things like that. But like, I also, I, I think that like a lot of people in this country and maybe in the world, but I know this country more, so I'm going to use the U S as an example. A lot of people like see like, Oh, a really rainy month that maybe they haven't seen before. And they're like, Oh, it was just rainy. Like they don't really see what the effect of that is. And like, 
in Idaho too, like I don't usually see the effect of like what climate changes all the time. I think the first year that I felt like I really started to see it was this year because this year, like the whole summer was over a hundred degrees. It felt like, and now all of a sudden it just kind of went woof into like kind of colder weather, like right away. And it's been super rainy for the past week and a half, which doesn't normally happen in Boise, Idaho. It's a desert. Yes. Um, and it's because weather doesn't equal climate, right? No. Right. Not at all. <laughs> but like, I think that like, what is truly difficult about this is, yeah, you have like climate deniers and all of that. And that's obviously not helping, but like, like people almost need to be like hit with the terrible weather or the difference in weather or the storm to like start to realize the bigger picture here. Right. And like, I don't want anyone to get hurt from this, but we got to do something. And I'm not really sure how much you start to get people to believe that climate change is real. I, I, like what's the momentum behind this? How many natural disasters do we have to go through? How many people got to die? Like the heat wave killed hundreds of people in the Northwest and other places. Like, like what is the, <laughs> what is, what is going to have to happen for us to like do way more than what we're doing now? I start playing I the think, culture war. Go for it. <laughs> well, I mean, I think that even like to, to offer some more statistics to it and, and, to complement what you just said is that like, you're right. Like even when we talk about climate change and specifically even the Paris agreement, right? Like keeping us from warming two more degrees. And I think when you say two more degrees to people, they're like, well, what the hell does that mean? Right? Like what is two more degrees I mean, mean like to, to, to them? Right. <laughs> right. Like I think like that for them, like it's even the language that we're using, like, cause you know, the planet's average surface temperature has risen about, this is from NASA, about 2.12 degrees Fahrenheit since the late 19th century, mm -hmm. a change driven largely by increased carbon dioxide emissions. Um, but that, in fact, surface temperatures actually mask the true scale of climate change because the ocean has absorbed 90% of the heat trapped by greenhouse gases. And that measurements collected over the last six de de decades by oceanographic, oceanographic expeditions um, and networks of floating instruments show that every layer of the ocean is warming up. And then according to one study, the ocean absorbed as, has absorbed as much uh, heat between 97 and 2015 as it did in the previous 130 years. Mm -hmm. it's, the rapid, it's the rapid increase that ought to be more concerning. And I think that like, even when you said it right, Caleb, like, oh, like what's going to look like in a hundred years. Well, the hundred year, 150 year predictions were like pretty stark and pretty dark guys. And like, I think to even put things in terms of a hundred years or 150 years, like really shows such a lack of scope of like, of humanity, right? Like as leaders, like, I can't believe we would even think about that. Like our, like our grandchildren could be yeah. a, like a great grandchildren could be, could be alive in 150 years. I, you know, like, I knew my great grandmother. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's just, yeah. What, what do you mean by that? You know what I mean? It just feels like it lacks any real scope to the issue. And the, the catastrophe, I mean, in, in true catastrophe of what like our normal could look like in even just a hundred, 150 years, m countries underwater, people having to migrate. Like, I mean, we think we have racial tensions and cultural issues now. I mean, this is a possible reality and it's not to be someone who's like panicking and ringing the alarm unnecessarily. It's like, well, we have to be aware of what's at risk for us to actually come call to action. And that's my point. Play that, play that message, play the culture war. You want Republicans to care? <laughs> Tell them that if they don't make a change right now in 20 to 30 years, this current migrant crisis that they feel every national guard troop needs to stand along the border locked together to stop, um, Southern Americans from migrating up to the U.S. will overwhelm any capacity that we have. Why? Because we're one of the few countries that after this 
as ice caps start to melt and as things um, progress, a lot of migrants will find safe haven in our specific country because we have uh, the elevation and we have the space and the capacity where we will be a safe haven. So start showing more movies like Dune, where you are seeing the full effects of individuals who are migrating in this situation, planet to planet, and then seeing the, the, the disadvantages that they face when the planet they move to is lacking resources because they've been overmined. Um, show those type of impacts and say what you will, because obviously conservatives have their own opinion about um, Hollywood right now, but play that message up because that is that, in my opinion, is the key and the space that needs to be thought about or talked about more um, as it relates to tackling this issue. I, you know, I think it's kind of like the little things in this because Torrance, like, like you mentioned, like, one thing that I really think about in all of this climate conversation is like all the stuff that scientists are like warning about, like if we warm to three degrees or four degrees um, by 2100, like that's incredibly dangerous and basically spells disaster for humanity. And I don't know, it's 2021, almost 22. And um like, honestly, my grandchildren are going to be alive in 2100. And I, I don't know, maybe I won't be too far off from it. But it's one of those things where, like, our grandchildren will be alive and we'll have to suffer the consequences if we don't do something now. And I think that, like, some of the momentum that I've seen for climate change and how it's just becoming more of a reality um, and where I see it mm-hmm. is kind of interesting um, and and and. I don't know. Like, I think it, I think it helps kind of make us understand that like, Oh, like this is happening because of what's happening in the world or what could happen. So like, for instance, what I'm talking about is like, there's a game that's coming out. Uh, I don't know in a couple months and it's called battlefield 2042. And that's only 20 years away from now. And battlefield 2042 is just like other battlefield games it's an ea game and it's basically a war game uh first person shooter but it's Mm -hmm. known for its realism it's very realistic um and i've i've enjoyed playing them but but the 2042 one the maps in it that you play multiplayer on or you play the campaign on like have like serious climate weather effects that are happening in those maps things Mm -hmm. that you haven't seen in a game like this before and those little things I think are actually a part of like getting everybody to understand, oh, wait, that is climate change and it's happening right now. Yeah. Yeah. And entertainment it, as a, a, you know, as a, as a vehicle for, you know, educating and bringing awareness to things is, you know, hugely helpful. Yeah. And I mean, even harping on your point a little bit, Caleb, let's not forget we are a generation that is uh, begrudging to most not having children because of this precise issue. We know the fact that excellent point in 20 plus years, our kids may not even be able to walk outside and breathe fresh air or might not be able to see. (laughs) I mean, if I end up going, that's a whole nother story. But again, to that culture piece of, and vilify me if you want, but um, you have these individuals who want to play culture politics who want to play up race all right your white 
population is not procreating because they are genuinely concerned that if they were to give birth tomorrow, by the time their child is a teenager, they might not be able to see their childhood home or there's just some dramatic effect. If you really want America to stay white, care about the issue. Here are the here are the pieces, here are the things of if we really yes. want to go back and forth on this, here you go. I'm going to support you because I also agree that, you know, my generation deserves to have kids. Use their logic against them. <laughs> oh, oh, you can always go to Terrell for, for the unconventional approach to the sol- for a solution. You want more white kids? Care about climate change. Well, yeah. can't can't beat racism. Well, let's use it. Sounds like them. It's like the voter no, ID law, right? Exactly. Just give everyone a goddamn ID. Then give everyone a damn ID. Problem solved. I I I, I fear that like obviously you know, like, I feel this that is way. something that's going to be continuously. It has been said in the past and will be continuously said on this podcast. But like climate change is something that uh, for us providing a generational perspective on the issues is something that we will deal with the consequences of whether that's us or our grandchildren or probably both and so Mm -hmm. like when it comes to climate change like we we really have to think of of different even might i say radical ideas to fight this because it's literally going to cost humanity at the end of the day if we don't do anything yeah and you know what i'll I'll be honest i'll say this like obviously not like serious like i'm mad at my grandparents or anything my parents like but like (laughs) i do have some sort of like generational generational resentment about like the world that we've that we're inheriting like especially when you like, you know, you learn in school, uh, you know, I took a, like a environmental policy class in undergrad, like, and we really delved into like the history of the, of the climate change and global warming, like debates, like as, as one of our units and like how long that debate went on when there was definitive science about, about what we should do is it, it you can't help but be very frustrated by that. Cause you're like, well, look what all of those decades of pushing back and putting this off has done to us and what we are inheriting. Like, how am I not supposed to be upset? And then, you know, and, and not to like go off on a tangent by any means, but like, you know, we talk about our generation having really high levels of depression, of anxiety, et cetera, in a, in a way that was not present for other generations. It's like, yes, they may have not, may not have had the language and yes, they may not have had the culture and society that welcomed that kind of, that kind of openness. However, what I'll say is this, like also you didn't deal with a climate crisis where it was like, will my children actually ever be able to breathe air and have <laughs> clean water or were they all children? And you weren't, you didn't inherit an economy that was, that was all but a lie based on the promises that, that you were made. If you did the right things, like they didn't have the things that we've inherited. And so I feel like that is a factor and our millennial perspective is something that I think has to be discussed. And like, that's not to say that they didn't have any issues, but I would say the climate one is no one was telling them, well, I'm not going to have kids because of climate. Like, and I, I think about that. Hmm. I, I actually no, process I, yes. it when I think about having kids. Like, I, I yeah. just struggle with our parents and our grandparents to contextualize their response, right? Because they had the education. Like, racism could have been tackled a little bit better in their generation. <laughs> climate change could have been tackled better in their generation. Because where we are today is inherently because of progresses that they made then versus like your Abraham Lincoln's or your George Washington's who didn't even know that dinosaurs existed at that point. That is a very different argument. Um, but even to that, I, I struggle or. To blame I, it on previous generations. No, to not blame it on a specific generation um, because we had a president Carter who installed solar panels on the White House 
and genuinely understood that there were things happening that he didn't fully understand, but would have a big enough impact past his, his lifetime that the U.S. needed to, one, become less dependent on fossil fuels, and two, find new and innovative ways to support itself and be an industry that um, wouldn't be affected by shortages or all of these other pieces. He recognized that the U.S. had a lot of potential in solar power. So the knowledge was there. The issue was the sediment was, this is too much change now, let's wait. And now those same idiots who said there was too much change now, let's wait, are running the government. Yeah, I think that like climate change in general and global warming is one of those things where like, it's one of those scientific things where everybody knows it's true, but like you haven't actually confirmed it with science, but you know it's true. Yeah. And then science confirms it and you go, well, I kind of already knew that. <laughs> I yes. feel like, I mean, like the the ripple effect of what uh, doing nothing about climate uh, now will be in the future is one of those things where it's like in the future, I'll be like, well, I knew it was going to be bad, but I didn't need science to tell me that. So let's, I mean... I don't know. Yeah. I, it's just it's just a frustrating thing. Well, and some I, of it seems idiotic, though. Don't, I mean, right? Like, think about right. You're talking about solar panels on the White House in the '70s during Carter, and it's like we have we have states like um, out west that have some of the largest landmass in, in comparison to other yeah. states, and have you know hundreds of thousands of citizens that live there as opposed to millions and much smaller square foot. They have all of this space for for solar panels. You think that we would be leading the world in solar energy? I mean, one would think. That we are doing that, but we would we have not made that investment, and we refuse to because we believe it to like you know business has been influential enough to make it seem like you know they can't change course when it's like all of these oil companies could be investing in alternative energy at a higher rate in a way that also is but you know profitable. It's just it's glaring. But anyway. also, Ronald Reagan was the biggest cancer to ever touch this earth. So it's... I mean, we have to also call out the fact that Ronald Reagan comes immediately after Carter uninstalls all solar panels and then goes on the culture war that we currently are living through and seeing the repercussions of today that have left us in this space. I actually get like, I don't know. I think about this a lot sometimes because like one of the most fascinating companies right now to me, and this may shock everybody is Exxon Mobil and they're a big oil and gas company. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> that face that you just made, Jordan. <laughs> <You know? laughs> ExxonMobil is a weird company because they used to be like the face of of energy of America, and now they have been kind of on a decline for a while. Yeah, because but they have a huge oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. Yes, but <laughs> well, that was BP. But Exxon, uh, the ExxonMobil spill was in yeah, Alaska, was, uh, right? Alaska, yeah. Oh, my bad. Um, but like. Well, they weren't even, that's not really when they started to decline. They just, yeah, business decision-wise and that stuff. That also just doesn't help. It doesn't help, no. I Like, the thing about, like, oil and gas companies, like these big oil and gas companies, is they are investing in renewable energy in different carbon capture um, strategies and technology and even anaerobic digestion, which produces natural gas without any of the greenhouse gas emissions that come with it. And, like... They, I'm not saying that it's perfect and they need to invest more. So I do agree with you, Torrance. I just like, I ask myself this, like, and maybe this is just a fault of mine living in a capitalist society, but like, 
I don't think ExxonMobil or Chevron, who are making these investments in slowly switching there, mm-hmm. would be a company if they completely stopped all their oil and gas stuff because there's still demand for that. Yeah. Like people still use oil and gas every day. And it's just, it's not going to be those individuals, individual companies, even if one of them decided we're not going to do oil and gas anymore. First of all, they would probably fail. But second of all, like I really do think this is, I mean, it, it'll take all of us. Um, but I think that like the drivers of them being able to switch those those hundred year old business models is going to be the U.S. government at the end of the day, more than they themselves can do, because the U.S. government's going to be the one to to really incentivize everybody to like I don't know not use a gas powered car, for example. True. Like I mean, obviously that's not the full answer. Everyone has to come together in this, but I I sometimes struggle with how. I'm not saying these companies are good or whatnot, and I'm not really trying to emphasize with them either. Trust me, but I just kind of wonder how for them. You are? I'm not. I'm not, I'm trying not to, but I, <laughs> I, I do wonder how like if I was Exxon Mobil and all of my business was oil and gas, and I'm making I'm trying to make a switch to renewable energy, and I'm not saying they're doing a good job of it, but if but if I was trying to do a good job of it, I don't think I would be able to still be a company and completely go away from oil and gas right this instant, if that makes well, sense. Well, it doesn't have to be instantly, but I guess what I'm saying is like, I, and I'm not even like, and what I'm about to say, I'm not saying like, oh, what great capitalist, you know, companies. And when I, when I reference, uh, you know, like the steamboat or, you know, like for example, for like the Vanderbilt family, right? Who went from, from, from steamboats who led the way in, Real in railroad, you know, um, mm-hmm. travel as well as shipping, and that's how they made the, the vast majority of their fortune. It's like, but it does take that we don't have that same capitalism where it's like, let me invest to, and take a huge risk in pioneering a a a new a part of this industry in a way that is beneficial. And it's like, that's fair. Why does that not exist? Right? Like, no one's saying do it all at once, but like someone, if you're gonna like someone has to be that leader, and you're right. And because they haven't had the incentive or the gumption or the character or you know the 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 ethical you know morality to to be motivated to do that, then yes, it does have to be the government. But quite frankly, right? Like that's that's again the, the failure of capitalism. It's supposed mm-hmm. to be the innovator. It's supposed to be the response, and it's not, and it continues not to be. So you know. All roads lead back to failed capitalism. I agree with that. I just think that like it's extremely hard for a company that's been doing the same thing for 70 years. And it maybe they did know about it 70 years ago, but I don't 100% think they did. But like, I just think it's extremely hard for them not to have help from the US government to yeah. completely change their way. And like, I think that's without knowing some of the bad shit that these companies have done. Right. Like, well, I would say you're right. Right. They can, yeah. they can't do it, but they sure ain't done enough. Yes, that's what I yeah. mean. It's like I don't think you're going away from gas and oil today. Like I still drive a gas powered car, for instance. But like, I think Same. in the future, like they better have fucking changed, and they better be doing something about it now to get there. Right. Well, as you guys can see, listeners, there's uh, plenty of opinions and thoughts to go around on climate change. Um, but I mean, honestly, I'll say, guys, I think that was that conversation is the most reflective of, I think, the like the millennial perspective that we bring on the podcast, like how like this would not be the same conversation with our parents. Right. Like the, the perspective that they bring to that. So um, Sorry, I guess mom. we'll have to wait to see what comes out of COP26, the United Nations Climate Conference um, with, 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 you know, with the leaders of, dev- of the developed countries in the world. And mm-hmm. hopefully we either take a large step into, you know, 
promising more about our performance, but also solidifying and putting some some teeth into the Paris Climate Agreement for those countries that have already committed to to you know cutting down their greenhouse gas emissions. We'll be back after this. So as promised from our last episode, um, we want to keep doing some of the questions that we got for our anniversary. So I think, Caleb, you have a question to kick us off. Yes, this question comes from my dad, and he wants to know why, Terrell specifically, why do you hate (laughs) Chuck Schumer? um, And what do you think he should do differently? And if you hate his leadership and or approach, what do you think he should do now regarding cinema and mansion in terms of the current reconciliation bill and even voting rights bills that are happening. <laughs> that's a lot. Get of ready for questions. a 20 minute that's answer. A lot of yeah. Keep, keep it tight. Keep it tight. <laughs> um, well, let me say I can answer the question first. Um, I will say this. Um, I, I don't hate Chuck Schumer, but like, you know, I think interesting in a way that we didn't, that we saw with, that we aren't seeing, from Chuck Schumer in the way that we did see from Mitch McConnell and his leadership as a uh, majority leader is like, I feel like Chuck ain't communicating enough. Like Chuck, talk to us. Let's get some heat under this ass, right? Like let tell us more. But also I guess I will say not to, cause I can't answer the question fully is like, I don't know what the behind the scenes conversations look like with Senator's mansion and Senator's cinema. Yeah. Um, and so I don't know what that looks like as a leader and how the maneuver, the maneuvering that he needs to make to get these bills passed. However, I would say, and I'm not even saying it would work. I think that if I, if, you know, being in being the majority leader, having the power to put things on the floor, having the power, I would break down some of these issues, some of these policies into singular bills and just toss them on the floor and make them vote no on every single one, putting up a, a putting up a filibuster on every single provision that is popular and has pulled well every single week, just lay it on them and try to get it on the floor and let that be the headline because that's, what's going to, I think also uh, sway the, the country's opinion on the filibuster to see how, uh, how much of an obstruction it is, except for twice a year. It seems like, right. It seems like we have the American rescue plan. And it seems like we've got this and those are the two big fights. We're talking about the filibuster and the issue with, with lack of agreement. And it's like, let's make legislation like, Let's, let's throw it out there weekly as much as we possibly can and get the American interest in the specific issues and the specific policies and watch how people that they vote for are voting down things that they care about. But other than that, Chuck Schumer, quite frankly, I just need you to talk more, brother. I want to pretend like I don't dislike him, but I do. Okay, so... <laughs> yeah, what? That does That is out of character. <laughs> because sometimes it's nicer to do that. But instead, here we are. So... My frustration here and my reason of annoyance is the fact that Chuck Schumer needs to understand that to be a majority leader, it requires an ability to uh, build together and bring together a population, while also it requires and, and needs this sense and semblance of, what's the word I'm looking for? really understanding your caucus. Like, I think that's where, that's where everything is the worst. Chuck Schumer is too focused always on recruitment and campaigning and never truly understanding what it means to be a part of the policy prescription. Um, Sorry to your father for this long winded answer, but I've never met a majority leader that has ever said we have a framework for the legislation 
and not the actual legislation so people can articulately argue and explain what is this going to do. We've had a lot of conversations about all these legislative agenda pieces and being able to say, these are great ideas and programs and policies, but what we can't understand and what we can't argue is the fact that there's no there's no meat to it. There's no understanding of what this is going to do. Um, so that is my frustration. That's my argument against Chuck Schumer specifically is he never, since becoming leader, he has never operated in that sense. He puts up these lofty bills and and says, we have a framework. Meanwhile, Nancy Pelosi is meeting with senators to find an yeah. agreement and right. make sure that her House caucus can be in agreement. Meanwhile, the president of the United States is walking across to help support and help build up those spaces. So I have a lot of frustrations in that specifically. And that's that's why I will continuously critique his leadership and critique um, his ability to show up. Also, you just know Nancy gets shit done. So that's Ooh, just that. She does. She does. All right. Next question. Is higher education still worth it for students today? Why or why not? Wait, you didn't answer. Copy look, and paste my opinions. <laughs> I mean, look, I think that like, I actually do mostly agree with Torrance here. Like, and I do agree with Terrell. I look, we don't, know obviously like all the inner happenings of chuck schumer and the democrats during all of this but it just feels like such a mess on the outside and i felt like it was going to be kind of messy anyways but like this feels like this feels like the democratic caucus is not even like one caucus at the moment and i feel like it could have been that way if chuck schumer i don't know was uh I think you put it really eloquently a few weeks ago as acting like a majority leader instead of minority leader. It feels like he's playing it like it almost feels like he's worried to put stuff on the table. Mm-hmm. What, because his own caucus might vote against it? I think that just puts pressure if 49 out of 50 senators vote for something and Manchin or Cinema vote against it. Like I still, I don't know. I, a lot of this stuff could have still gone into reconciliation. I, It's just, I, I agree with, with Torrance that I, I wish... I wish we were seeing more examples of what Chuck Schumer said he would do at the beginning of all of this, which is I'm going to put stuff in front of the Republican Party. And if they say no, then the American people will know that they voted no against this incredibly popular provision. And he hasn't done that. And that's what's that's what's frustrating for me. OK, moving on. Next question. Is higher education still worth it for students today? Why or why not? And at what point could this shift and what would it take? You're still in higher ed right now, so is it worth it? I I think so. I mean, I think it depends. I think that I'm obviously not a uh, 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 expert on higher education affairs in the U.S. or anything like that. But like my experience, I have a lot of friends who don't think that they're getting their degree was worth it. Um, and then I see a lot of college leaders trying to trying to talk about why it's beneficial. I think it is beneficial. I don't think that I would have had some of the opportunities I would have had without going to college, albeit not all of it was academic related. I was a very involved individual in higher education, got involved with student government and whatnot. And like, yeah, I had good grades at the end of the day. And I think that maybe somewhat helped me. But um, those involvement opportunities that I got or that I um, really made for myself was what I felt like was worth it for me. Mm -hmm. And now that I'm in grad school, I'm not as involved. 
But I have to say that like in terms of academics, like being in grad school for me has been a lot more worthwhile um, than undergrad. Uh, to give an example, like in undergrad, there was classes that I felt like I could kind of bullshit my way through. I didn't really have to do a lot to get the yeah. A in there. Um, and I didn't really always feel like I always learned a lot either. But in grad school, I, I can't bullshit my way through classes. I actually have to like read the textbook and like uh, learn stuff. And I were right now, one of my classes, we actually work with local companies to help them solve their own business decisions or business um, issues and whatnot. And like that kind of experience for me has been a lot more worthwhile than I think I ever got academic related in, mm-hmm. in um, my four year bachelor's degree. So I think it just depends. I feel like the bachelor's degree is like the new, it feels like it's kind of the new bare minimum of what you need to do stuff today. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily make it the most worthwhile thing you do. 100%. But it also kind of depends on what you do because for me it was worthwhile, but that's because I like just had a really great time with my different involvement things I was in. So I don't know, like I'm curious what you all think about this. I think it's, um, I think it depends on the person if it's worthwhile or not personally. Yeah, I would say my my response is multifaceted, I guess two two pronged. Mm-hmm. One being that like I getting in I think that obviously our 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 workforce, but we know this, right? We know the issues that face the wage stagnation, the the okay, go to college, get a degree, then get a job, and it'll all pay off, right? Like if you have to take loans out, it it'll all pay off. It'll it'll be worth the investment. Now, that hasn't been the case. Like our, our workforce and our economy does not support someone who had to, who did not have the assistance on, on education that a lot that some kids get, mm-hmm. right. That like having to take out loans and now facing those loan payments, like it's, it's difficult. And it certainly is not, has not provided me with the same like income opportunity that I thought it would be when I get after, you know, making that both personal investment and financial investment in myself. Um, but to that point, I guess to, to, I would say that the other prong is that I feel like as a person, it was incredibly beneficial. Every like the, the, the education part, the social part of it, the being involved part. I think that like that made me a more whole human, a, a better person, a, a more informed person. And I also like think that like that education has helped me be, help me understand the world better, understand the economy better, understand how to take opportunities and, and maximize on the potential. I think that like, though that part of it is really, really important and whether or not the specific classes I took or the degree I got is going to give me some specific skill that makes me super valuable in the work, in the workforce. I would say that it gave me a culmination of knowledge or a, um, that has made me a more well-rounded person that has allowed me to go out into the world and make more opportunities for myself because of those other things. Um, so I, I I still believe that it's very important because also like look at our, our public education system up through high school like people don't get civics one hundred and one people don't get our government people don't understand our constitution people don't understand laws mm-hmm. and like look at our society and our politics right now like people like people's ignorance is a large reason that some of this like disinformation and these conspiracies take hold because they do not have the foundational knowledge of other topics and specifics to help look at a conspiracy theory and say, well, that's just flat out untrue. So I think, you know, like education is important. And I think that college was a great investment in myself, but to see its payoff, I don't know. We'll have to see. Yeah. I mean, I've seen, I've seen people like you, Torrance, where 
kind of the same answer as you. And I've seen people who really don't think it was worth it after all those years doing it because they're having a tough time finding a job that's worthwhile. And I've had a ton of people I know that have gotten kind of the job that they were hoping or a type of job they were hoping to get after getting a college degree. So I just, I think it just really depends. I think, yeah. I, I don't know. It's tough. Sorry, Terrell, I kind of took no, your you part. Didn't, you didn't, didn't at all. Um, so I shout out to Autumn for this question. I kind of want to get at the root, the root of, is it worth it? Cause I think that, I think the way the question was worded is focused more on workforce, less on personal development. So I'm going to start there and then, yeah. Mm. Um, maybe a year ago to this date, I went on a very long rant with a colleague about the fact that higher education is the only industry that um, trains its own workforce under certain theories and then sets the threshold for how much theory you need before you can get a position in that specific workforce. So as a coordinator, you tend to need a bachelor's, but if you want to make it to that AD route, you have to make sure you have a master's. If you want to get past the AD route, you need a PhD. And who's going to teach you? People who are actually colleagues to you, not you having to go out to another workforce, like your law schools, your medicine, so forth, where you go to a school, they teach you the fundamentals, but then you learn a lot on the job, which I do think is important. And I think higher education as a thing has become inflated into a space where because it functions in that space of not only do we train our workforce, but we put them in here. So if we can build that model other places, it'll be important. It has inflated itself to seem like higher education is necessary for every job. And very similar to what both of you shared, I have a fortunate experience in my current role that I'm enjoying and is more my speed. While I have gone through imposter syndrome and I've struggled in spaces where I've I think I was competent at least. Um, that's all because I come from the system that for me to be in this space, I need a master's before that because I need to master this skill versus understanding that talking to you all about politics, I clearly have those skills there. I just need someone to take a, a chance or an opportunity and recognize having a bachelor's degree in political science um, gives me enough insight that you know what you're talking about and we can work from there. So in that situation, yes, I would argue that uh, higher education is worth it, but in some industries, it's become too inflated and it's become too much of a burden where individuals in our generation feel like they have to go all the way up to a PhD only to be making a couple thousand dollars versus an individual who stopped out of a uh, um, bachelor's level mm -hmm. and happened to make a, make a connection and now is connected with and and has moved up so that's that's how i take the question but i do agree with everything you all shared that higher education helps you see the world and move out of this egocentric space to a more holistic globalized globalized space um which is important and it, it makes community easier without that as you can see, if you ever looked at any chart around politics, you end up with tribalism. You end up with individuals who don't want to get vaccinated because in their mind, they heard something from someone and they took that as fact. Um, 
And because there's nothing there to, to challenge them to think differently, they won't step out of it. Well said. Okay, y'all. Rabbit fire. What are you going to be for Halloween? I am going to, I'm doing a murder mystery night. Okay. So I don't really have a choice of what I'm doing for Halloween. I currently am a parolee. I was going to say, so you're going to be <laughs> in a trailer park. You're going to be Colonel Mustard in the library <laughs> with a candlestick. Torrance. Candlestick always. I'm going to be well rested. <laughs> nice. Tell me what that feels like. Cause <laughs> I can't even make a costume to fit that. Uh, I think I'm going to be Ali or some form of boxer. So mm, nice. Okay, cool. It's easy. Not going to lie. All right. Well, happy Halloween to everyone. And that's our show. <laughs> that's our show. <laughs> I'm Caleb. I'm Terrell. And I'm Torrance. And we're dangerously likely to see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>